have scrolled and clicked your way to Behind the Buzz, a Public Fit Theater Company's occasional podcast detailing, discussing, analyzing, and, and, and just downright talking about the production process that we go through in putting together our season of plays and staged readings. This is episode number seven of season number two. And unless we manage to score a surprise interview with uh, Dominique Mariso or Brandon Jacobs Jenkins, this will probably be the final episode of this season as it corresponds with our final reading of this season. Will Arbery's controversial, contentious, polemical, argumentative (laughs) Heroes of the Fourth Turning, which will be presented for just two performances, Friday, June 24th, and Saturday, June 25th, in partnership with the Las Vegas Clark County Library District. I'm Joe Kukin, producing director here at A Public Fit. And as always, I'm joined by artistic director, Anne-Marie Perez. Hi there. And any second now, we'll be speaking with Heroes cast members, Nick Huff and Lisa Mandel. But first, uh, Anne-Marie, you know, I, I used uh, <laughs> I used an awful lot of, of, of pointy adjectives to describe this 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 play. Do you want to talk a little bit about its history with us and, and how it came to land this in uh, in our season? Sure. Um, so uh, like all the other plays that are in our season, we uh, uh, read this play during the lockdown. We right. read over 40 plays. Uh, and this was a play that was brought to us by a childhood friend of ours, Brad Heberly, who is also a professional actor in New York City. And he said, I saw this really great ba- play uh, prior to the lockdown. He goes, but the topic is a little bit controversial, but I liked it. And I was like, okay. So uh, we got our crew together. We, you know, uh, and we read it. We read it twice. We read it twice. Um, and um, in fact, Nick, I think was at the, at the second reading. But the first time we read it because the subject matter um, dealt with a lot of conservative um talking points in in the storyline, a lot of the actors um, really push back against the play. They didn't really see the the value uh, of the play. I remember that first reading. Mm -hmm. There was a hesitancy to really commit to these characters. Let me just say, Mm -hmm. I don't want to steal your thunder here, but it's a a play about four uh, old friends who are coming to a sort of makeshift reunion. One of their parents is Mm -hmm. ascending to the presidency of this, this small Catholic university in the middle of Wyoming. Uh, they're very conservative. They're very Republican. Um, it's set literally one week after the Charlottesville riots. We're, we're in the age of, of firmly in the age of Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, and they they talk as you know, as you do among friends very openly about their beliefs. Yeah. And, um, you know, when we were doing these uh, play readings during the lockdown, you know, we didn't have anybody prepare. You know, people could read the play in advance yeah. if they wanted to. Uh, so as they were reading along, uh, they stopped committing to the material because they didn't agree with the subject matter, uh, which I found really interesting. But, um, that being said, uh, it's a really well-written play and you and I were very interested in it again. So we decided to read it again uh, to see if we would have a similar reaction and, and, uh, partially we did, but what one of the conversations that we had um, in the discussion af- afterwards is that we talked about how important the atmosphere of the play is right. in order to inform the play. And something that we've discovered during rehearsal is even though it talks about a lot of conservative talking points, the characters are very rich. They're not just one brand of conservative 
ism. Yeah. They, uh, there's, uh, they're very interesting characters. They're very lovable characters in some way. And they're just characters who are in a lot of pain, which is very representational of most of humanity. Sure. So um, if you approach the play with that perspective um, and really dig into the characters and be advocates for the characters, then um, you start to have a lot of compassion for the story. And I think that's that's a good thing in the theater because it opens up an opportunity to have conversations. And our theater company is about having conversations. Well, we're about conversations, but this season particularly we spent great pains mm -hmm. to make it a season of inclusion and, and to create as as many voices as possible and it occurred to i think both of us that that this was a voice that was missing from the theater not just our theater i think theater writ large yeah but i don't feel and this was something that was talked about when we were uh, doing design presentations i don't feel like it's like us peering over a window right. or, or over a, a fence and there's, like, not a, oh, there's no voyeuristic quality right, to oh, it. look let's see what the conservatives are doing yeah it's uh, something that I discovered in the research was it's about what the debate does to all of us. Right. Right. The debate um, turns us into very angry, resistant people that are not open to new ideas. And that doesn't matter where you're at in, in the in any political idea, whether you're a conservative, moderate, liberal, progressive, if you're really holding on to your ideas too tightly, then, um, you know, that's something that we uh, people we all should look at. Well, because even in this play, these these mm -hmm. four, well, it's a five character play, but the four sort of the younger, um, sorry, Lisa, characters <laughs> in the play, as you said, different types of conservatives. She's younger than you. That is true. <laughs> Most people it's are these days. It's all how you days. feel, guys. It's all how you feel. Quiet, you haven't been introduced yet. Sit over there in your corner. Um, <laughs> we, because there are four, uh, there are four very d different types of conservatives, they also, they argue with themselves. They argue against themselves. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, I'm going to introduce them now. I don't, I didn't put, nobody puts Lisa in a corner. Exactly. Yeah, there we go. Okay. Um, I'm going to count them on my right hand, the number of people that get that reference. Uh, let me do a quick, but I'm just, to, I'm going to introduce Nick first, just a blabbermouth. Um, joining us are a couple of, of performers from uh, Heroes of the Fourth Turning. Nick Huff. Nick uh, is a Los Angeles native who's been back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, but now once again lives here in Las Vegas, calls Las Vegas home. Uh, lots of lots of work in film and television, uh, a member of the Actors Gang in Culver City. Is that still true? Yes. Um, and you all surely remember Nick from APF's production of Other Desert Cities, as well as playing Ken in what is is arguably one of our more popular readings to date. Red, you are in 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 red. That's right. Yeah. That's right. It's Thanks for experience. coming out, Nick. Thanks for having me. And, and Lisa's here. Hey, Lisa. Hello, Joseph. Lisa Mandel <laughs> was accidentally born in Las Vegas uh, into a true showbiz family. She, along with my humble self, was a founding member of the Rainbow Company Youth Theater, where I have to say she was that company's it girl for, well, like, 10, 11 years or so. As long as they would allow it. But she didn't stop there. No, 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 no. She leases Broadway and national credits uh, include the Will Rogers Follies, original cast of that, I mm -hmm. think. Uh, Sunset Boulevard, The Producers, Applause, Copacabana, and Mamma Mia. She's worked at the Peppermill Playhouse, Pioneer Theater Company, uh, Art Center of Coastal Cal Carolina, and was most recently seen here in Las Vegas in the Nevada Conservatory Theater's production of Brighton Beach Memoirs. She earned a BSBA in marketing from University of Arizona's Eller College of Management and a Master of Arts in International Relations from the American College of the Mediterranean, Aix-en-Provence, France. 
Now, aside from my questionable pronunciation of Aix en Provence, <laughs> uh, was that all pretty perfect. accurate? <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> Thanks for coming out. Lisa, you live in you live in Arizona these days, but you've come out to do this reading for us. You've heard Emery and I talk a little bit about the show. I'm done apologizing about the material. In fact, I think when I sort of reached out to you about it, I said, I'm sorry about this play. It's It's got some questionable uh, themes. It's got some questionable dialogue. Uh, but I, I reached out to you to see if you were interested in it. You read it and loved it immediately, and there was no apology necessary. Not at all. Tell I think, me about that. Well, I think the idea of discourse is something we're missing in our country. Yeah. Maybe we're missing it globally. And this play brings it to light. I would say that Will Arbery's writing is very autobiographical. You can go on to the website of the actual Catholic College of Wyoming and yeah. see his parents on the um, advisory board as the president and as one of the lead facts. And so the material is taken from his backyard, but he puts it into everyday dialogue that's relatable from various perspectives. And I think it's easy. I think the easy take is to say, oh, it's super controversial. Liberals are going to have just a heyday with this. That's and what I've conservatives been doing. Are do yeah, I've been doing I that. don't see it that way. I read it from, from A to Z and I found the characters very humane. Yeah. Even when they go off the rails, they go off the rails because they are deeply passionate. Now, whether their passion takes them down a path that many of us would be like, wow, that took a turn someplace <laughs> in life or I didn't expect. It's their turn that they take. I mean, it's their personal moment yeah. and it's true for them. So there's, I would say that's what's really beautiful about the material beyond the humanity that's written into the script is also the idea that there's great truth. Each character speaks his or her truth yeah. and not to say my truth is the fact, but it is their personal honesty and truth. You know, you said autobiographical. Um, I, I read an interview with Will Arbery and he, he was, um, pointing out that that anyone who would talk to him about the play would immediately want to pin him down and say, hey, you still you still going to mass? Are you still uh, uh, you still hold some of these beliefs? And they wanted to know exactly what his perspective was, because that would allow them to sort of frame the play mm -hmm. in, you know, is, is he being sarcastic? Is he being ironic? Is mm -hmm. he is he being uh, is he putting together a point, putting forward a point of view? Nick, you know, when we look at plays, Emery and I and try to find out the character who most probably presents the playwright's true point of view. And we both agree. Uh, tell me if I'm wrong, Emery, but we both agree that, that that's your character. Yeah. Well, do you, is that, does that seem fair? Yeah, no, absolutely. And when you said that through the process, when we were doing our table reads initially, and you said, I, you know, I think that this is probably Will's perspective on the page. And I, I immediately it hit me and I, I think you're absolutely right. And then going down the rabbit hole of listening to any interviews of his that I could get my hands on and yeah. watching. Uh, actually, it was a discussion that he was it was like a Zoom during the pandemic, like a Zoom workshop he led. God, which one? He did a hundred. I know. It's all over the place. Yeah, there's what well, you can find it on YouTube. And I found it and I was watching it in the first like five minutes. I I started to feel similar speech patterns to also like Kevin. Oh, and, really? and it just really struck Kevin me. Is your character yeah name. kevin is my the character i play and yeah and I, I think that that's absolutely what it is but you know i i find this you know similar to what lisa said you know the fact that he's writing about people he knows the, yeah. these are people he knows he's not 
taking these ideas and creating any caricatures around it. These are incredibly intelligent people, um, which is also the the other fascinating thing about it. You know, I think that there is a there is a mindset too that you know the caricature that you have of the conservative voter is sometimes portrayed as you know dumb and uneducated and and so that was the other thing here too these people all have really strong points of view and it's rooted in beliefs and they can talk through their points whether you agree with them or not it's you know well, it's being very conservative being yeah. very conservative politically but also on a dime being able to quote mm. aristotle and at one point you throw out a wordsworth poem out of the blue right and that these are characters who are educated in in a very uh complete holistic way right They're, yeah i probably use that word wrong conservatives that have been educated liberally and and what what does they say in the in the the play too you were taught to climb mountains and build igloos and uh, live off the land right. and, and, and all, and as well as being able to quote the philosophers and, and uh, poets that you do. Right. I find that really interesting because he's, he's, he is telling us that these characters are not uh, in any way, just some backwater Trump voting Hicks. You'll have to excuse that, that uh, uh, um, stereotype. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that coming from if if the assumption is correct, that I'm, I'm sort of representing that the author's voice a little bit, you know, where Kevin is, is sort of questioning himself, like questioning what he's believed up to this point in this very specific time the play is set, which is after the Charlottesville riots with Trump kind of firmly in it's Kevin is in this place where wait a minute, like it's this re reexamination of everything he knew to be true and like and kind of saying, well, wait, if this really bumps up against my faith, my, my ideas of like, how did we get here? And yeah. I think that Kevin is really struggling with that. I think he also wrote the play in response to Trump being elected in, mm. in the research that, yeah. and the discussions that we had, because the assumption is that all conservatives really um, love Trump as a leader. And right. so he he's bringing that idea uh, into the conversation, into the, in, in the play. Right. And do you want to give some of those specifics away or you want to leave that as a mystery? Well, not all of the characters um, actually like Trump, except for maybe one of them. Sure. They 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 find his habits and his his personal choices, um, maybe not all of his political choices to be uh, a bit repulsive. Right. And, and they talk about it He's freely. certainly not Catholic. Yeah. They talk about it freely in the play. Um, but one of the characters sees the the purpose uh, that that Trump um, serves uh, as a leader and, uh, to represent a certain voice. Yeah. Well, you, Nick, you talked a little bit about you, uh, the table work that we've done and talking about Kevin as being a, a, a sort of mirror for Arbery in some way or, or, or a megaphone for Arbery in some ways. What was your initial reaction to the play, though? Can I ask? Was yeah. it similar to mine, which was, oh, my good Lord. <laughs> Well, yeah, I remember because I was a part of the second initial, right, of course. initial reading that we did. And this was during the pandemic over Zoom. And I, I do remember that uh, post reading conversation. And I think I don't know if it was an effect of it being over Zoom and less it was less personal, a little removed. You just heard these words and ideas. And, you know, yeah, at first glance and at first read, it really jumps out. You there's a lot of uh, fiery language and perspectives that are you know it's shocking definitely yeah. and i think that it's really easy it was really easy to kind of grab onto that initially and kind of be 
put off or just kind of your defense comes up. And I think maybe that's the point too, is the, this idea of debate, what happens where we dig our heels in and be like, well, I don't like this person or I don't like that argument. But I do remember that after, after we read it, we were all kind of the argument, you know, a lot of different voices about not really enjoying the piece. Uh, but then, you know, for me, what struck me is that, you know, we, what is theater if it's not an idea of, you know, if we're not the voices of empathy yeah. and, and trying to, that has to stretch to places we get uncomfortable too. Your head's going to fall off from nodding so hard, yeah. Lisa. I know it's not playing well <laughs> on a podcast, but yeah, I, yeah. I agree wholeheartedly yeah. in the sense that, um, the characters find this way of bringing about uh, topics that maybe we 10 years ago, 20 years ago, you would not hear at a dinner table. You wouldn't hear in public. And so it examines the play also examines, although present day examines the idea of a timeline in our history through political lenses and how if we pay that respect and recognize that not everything is in the moment. Why is this that? It would be one of the exact lines saying, why is this that? Why are we always making this that? Mm. And, and, and it gives people, whether they're audience members that are engaged through listening and watching the human interactions or it's the creatives. And I do think as creatives, it's us, to, it's up to us to play a very truthful part of it. And, and not necessarily read into uh, the dislike of it, but read into the absolute honesty of the material. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm so sorry. Yeah. The last final thing I was going to say on that is, you know, beyond the ideas, what we're what I'm finding the more we rehearse is that these are people. These are people um, and the relationships are coming forward. And these are just people with a tradition, with a worldview um, and, you know, some are questioning that some, some are getting more firm during this particular time, but it's, it's a lot easier to judge someone when you're not, you, when you're just hearing the idea. And, but when you meet the person, you know, you start to empathize in a new way. And I think that we're starting to find that, which is exciting. It may be a, not a, sorry, that may not be a great analogy, but just because someone loves to eat peanut butter doesn't mean they like jelly on their sandwich. Mm. all the time. <laughs> and so I think no, that's, that's a great analogy. You know, I, Gina is one of those people where she believes to herself to be extremely conservative um, in whatever timeline that is, but is not a lover of the president of that moment yeah. at all. She's, and so you can't assume that just because you may have voted uh, straight ticket, single issue, however, however you want to place that, that, um, all of the rest falls in line easily for us to stick in an envelope, lick it and mail it. Right. Also, another thing that I think is interesting about the play is there's a lot of allusions to other bits of literature that I, I wasn't even familiar with. So it, it's so smart, the play that it really makes me lean in and really listen. Uh, he doesn't dumb it down. At all. At all. Right. At all. You have to really lean in and listen and pay attention to the dialogue. So it's taken me down a lot of rabbit holes of other references like the Benedict Option, the Fourth Turnings, Flannery O'Connor. And those are just three. There's there must be 
15 references uh, in, in the play that uh, I had to look up that I knew nothing about. Sure. Well, and, and not to mention the the very specific rituals of Catholicism itself. Catholicism plays a heavy part in the in the play because they're all all five of these characters devout Catholic. Agena, for God's sake, is about to become president of the uh, of the the Catholic university there, the Catholic college there. Um, yeah, and his understanding of Catholicism and the scriptures and the transfiguration that's mentioned, he embeds that language into the text. And I can see all of those allusions in the text. And it it, it, it can take many, many hours to really uh, research and reference all those points to see what he's doing. It, it's it's very smart. So is this just a smart person's play, though? Is Are we are we are we going to alienate are the dumber our dumber audience members? <laughs> Well, what I always tell my students as directors or when we're analyzing plays or when we're putting on a show, we'd never want to oversimplify anything and, right. and assume that people won't understand. People like to be challenged when they come to the theater. They like to not know everything because then once they see the play and they haven't figured it all out, their minds are still going and then they go off and research and sometimes they come back if it's really that interesting. I, I don't think we should ever um, dumb down a play for anybody. Oh, no, I completely agree. And I think it'd be very hard. I think that the way this play is written, I don't know that you could dumb it down. I don't know that there would be a way to dumb this one down. I think it's pretty, pretty smart on the page. Um, you'd really have to go out of your way to... To, to dumb this one down. I want to talk a little bit. We, I mentioned, well, you guys mentioned their, their philosophical backgrounds, their education, their, uh, their Catholicness. Um, it's one of the things that, that Arbery says in the intro to the play is he says, essentially, this is a play about whiteness. And I think it's something we have to talk about. We have had a very inclusive season this year. I'm thinking immediately of, of plays like Skeleton Crew, uh, an all-black cast and directed by uh, Jason Nias, uh, um, um, an African-American director. And I think about the language in that play. And then I look at this play, Will Arbery, a very white playwright, a very white cast, talking about the nature of whiteness, that the play is is what sometimes we see when uh, people know that they are among like-minded people without any outside um, observers and how they speak in, in that way. Um, I, is, that, is that a valuable perspective these days? The nature of whiteness, can we in any way take pride in presenting that perspective? Oh, no, nobody wants to jump in on this one. <laughs> I, no, it's hard. And I, I, I want to acknowledge the difficulty, uh, the difficultness of the, of the subject itself. I, I understand it, but safe space here. Right. But it goes, it feels like, and I could be very incorrect in saying this, it feels like we're going against inclusivity, although it's, the group itself is considered inclusive because of their subset. So if it's a subset group of inclusive individuals, then it feels at least uh, in bringing the truth to the, in bringing the truth to everything, it feels a little bit more safe to do. Um, I will say it is an, un it is, it's an uncomfortable perspective for me. It does feel, um, It's, there's something difficult about it, but I think that is one of the great challenges is that the dialogue um, is pretty overt and saying, hey, pay attention now. Here comes a little white moment. I, I, I completely agree with you. 
the the only thing I would add to yeah. th- to that is that that in terms of the idea of inclusivity, I don't know how often we hear from the far right conservative political viewpoint on the stage. I don't know how often that is given voice uh, in Toto. I mean, the entire play is, is those characters. There is no funny liberal outsider who steps in to be the clown and to, to, to show the other side. There's nothing like that in this play. This is five very conservative, some would say extreme, well, a couple of characters, it's not even some would say, a couple of characters promote themselves as being extremely far right. Uh, one character is certain that there is a literal war coming, a, a literal war, a civil war in America, and she's preparing for it. And I think that that, that voice, I, again, without uninterrupted by the clownish liberal outsider, um, we don't see that a lot on the Broadway stage, on, an, on any stage in America uh, these days. Well, yeah. And I, I mean, I guess my, my thought um, at the risk of, you know, coming across I, I, at just painting it with a broad stroke. I think the, I do agree that it is a difficult thing to tackle, but I think that if we are going to, if the theater is a place where we're going to try to get to the heart of, of understanding a person's maybe motivations and structures, this play, even though with the outset of, yes, it's a full white cast, but we are getting to the heart of these people. And instead of even yeah, like you said, representing the conservative uh, mindset, we we as you know the a liberal minded person can easily paint that with a broad stroke too. So in here, getting in, I think we are still trying to get to a, a problem to solve and a and a people to understand. I think understanding is only going to bring us closer together, and and so it could be helpful in just getting a more rich, full three D. Um, representation of something rather than just saying, oh, here I am, I'm a theater going liberal person and I'm just going, and the conservatives are this one blank thing. This definitely bumps up against that because I think even just your idea of what you said, Anne-Marie, earlier about, I think there are a lot of people that think all conservatives love Trump, just that idea. I mean, I think that that would be, you know, if you just pulled people on the street, I think most liberals would say, yeah, they all love him. That's very clearly not you know, the case, once you start digging in and a lot, there's a ton of people holding their nose and, and for, for all kinds of reasons rooted down into who they are. I mean, especially with Catholicism and faith as a backdrop. I mean, these are things that are deep in someone's, you know, belief system. Um, and so representing that point of view, I think is itself inclusive in a way, even though it's beyond whiteness. Well, to- it's, it's also about language too, though, isn't mm-hmm. it? I, I mentioned skeleton crew earlier, and one of the things that came up, you know, we 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 buzz after all of our all of our shows, all of our readings. We we have a, continue the conversation with the audience, and in one of the buzzes for skeleton crew. Um, I was introduced to a term that uh, I hadn't heard for a while called code switching, where the uh, some of the uh, people of color in the audience were mentioning to me that what the playwright had really gotten right was the way those black characters 
could speak to each other and would change their language when introduced within, to an outsider. And they called that code switching, that the, the context of their words would, would change. And it made me think about the way language is used in this play as well. And I wonder if there isn't some sort of... Uh, do you think that the language between these characters would change if a, uh, you know, a young liberal or a, or a uh, um, uh, let's say, a, a Hispanic uh, walked into this conversation? Would would their would their pretense change? Well, isn't it, it? It's even mentioned in the play that Kevin tries to engage about the subject of transgender uh, over Facebook. Yeah, and he does. He code switches in order to try and reach a broader audience with his perspective. And and, and many groups code switch. The LGBTQIA community code switch. Women. I code switch as a woman all the time when I'm de- with a, a, a certain group of people. Sure. Uh, and so in this play, they don't have to code switch because they all have a, a similar religious background uh, and they all have an experience where they went to school together. So they're all referring to the same thing. So they get to be exactly who they are in the space, this outdoor space around a, a, a fire, uh, and, and talk about the things, even if they are in conflict with each other. Why does that feel so dangerous? Because nobody wants to be accused of being racist, or yeah. nobody wants to be accused of being homophobic. Yeah. Right. And, and so, uh, and that's what the language is, uh, is about right now with the the Black Lives lot. Um, Black Lives Matter community, right? And with the LGBTQIA community, they're finally those groups are 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 finding some understanding within the community and, and so, being heard and being heard. Yeah. Yes, and so we don't want to take a step backwards. And so, in when you brought up the question amongst all of us, I think my initial fear was like, well, I don't want anybody to think that I'm racist, or I don't want anybody to think that I'm closed-minded, or that this play is actually trying to pull some of that territory yeah, or, back, or we're doing a play about whiteness. Right. No, we're actually doing a play uh, where we're trying to understand a very specific group of people, right? And that, um, and that those people are being represented on stage. And unless you see it and you work with the play, you, you, it's hard to explain exactly what I'm talking about. You, sure. You mentioned the same moment I thought of when you posed the question, Joe, is when Kevin talks about in trying to engage people on the transgender conversation and then, and how Maddie is about the comment wars on Facebook. And I do think that, that, that these conversations are happening on social media so much where it's just these and people behind the keyboard are vicious and ugly and very brave, you know, and, yeah, and brave yeah. keyboard warriors and things are triggering and an idea is triggering. And then I, but I, and so I think you can see where Kevin is getting it wrong, trying to have the transgender conversation, probably on Facebook. I could see where Kevin would not be handling that correctly. But when you sit with Kevin and like, as I have, I, I think that Kevin really is curious trying to understand and then getting shut down and then his line is actually what do you want me to hate you yeah well it, and then it like it's part of uh, that is the venue though too kevin makes a great one of the first scenes that, that kevin has he says look we need to have a big conversation mm. remember when we used to have the big conversation let's have a big conversation that that's really what he wants and i don't think that anyone has ever found that on facebook i don't know that anyone has ever found mm. a big conversation on any sort of social media because it is so much back and forth of this one line and that one line and I'm trying to up you with a snotty remark and right I, I think there's a 
great deal of one-upping and a great deal of, I need to be right. Yeah. I not necessarily Lisa Mandel need to be right, but I think when people put their viewpoint out, they need to be validated. There's a sense of validation necessity of I, my, my belief couldn't possibly be wrong. And I think instead of taking the challenge and, and maybe letting it sit for a second and thinking about, um, Where's that middle ground? Uh, people, wow, okay, we have an extra friend on the podcast right now that maybe. Uh, For those of you at home, Lisa has produced a very small Yorkie from a very large uh, purse. <laughs> but yeah, but no, I think to your point, I think the yeah. Facebook conversation, this is, this is a place where, and I think that that reminds me of when we did our first reading, I think you tried to identify the first moment in the play where that is going to make people uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And it's very early. It's, very, it's early. very early. And it is, it's like, and we're not used to that. When we're uncomfortable with something, we usually, if it's a social media thread, we don't sit with it longer than that. We have a reaction and we move away from we it. Call it triggering, or not yeah. uncomfortable. Yeah. I mean, we might have some audience members who are like, yeah, well, I agree with that. Right. Or I agree with Gina or I agree with Emily or, or I understand mm. Kevin, you know, or mm. I understand Teresa. Yeah. Right. I, yes. I think that both sides of the aisle, if we do, if we play our cards right, if we do our play right, if we present these characters right, I think both sides of the political aisle is going to understand these people. It's going to understand these characters, whether they share their, their points of view or not. Um, I don't know that that's what we're trying to do. I don't know that we're trying to convince anybody of a point of view. I think we, the opposite of that. I think we're trying to present these characters uh, to be understood as people, to be understood as characters, not necessarily to be understood as political talking points. Yeah, that's not the point of the play. Not at all. And, and oftentimes when we get into these political discussions, we want an outcome where we are right. But the play yeah. doesn't do that. There's so much that's unresolved in the play. Uh, well, that's and, an important part of it too, isn't it? Yes, that's and that's why I like the play because it's unresolved because it's about the discourse, the conversation. It's not about resolving things things in terms of like, I'm right and you're wrong. You know, conservatives are right and liberals are wrong or liberals are right and conservatives are wrong. Right. That is not what I feel Will Arbery is trying to do. That is not the purpose of the play. I think we both mentioned at one point in our first table read about an interview with Will Arbery, who said that is the point of one of the points of his writing was he's like, I'm not going to give you a solution. I'm Basically, he's like, I'm just a guy. I don't necessarily have the solution. He says, but that is what seems to charge audiences. They're like, you didn't tell me what was right. He's yeah. like, that's right. It's a play for you to invest in and engage in. And whether you make a determination or switch your current mindset and or broaden your mindset was, I think, one of the points he had made in an interview. Well, how many times have we have we experienced that uh, in the theater of an audience member coming and asking you, well, whatever, ha what happened to so and so? Right. Or what's the what does this mean in, in the play? What is the meaning of the thing with the stuff and the guy who does the thing? And very often, you know, we don't have answers for those questions because those are answers that audiences must bring. Yeah, what does it themselves. mean to you? <laughs> yeah, what does it mean to you? How did it, how did it play to you? And that's the point of it very often. Also, also the structure of modern plays are uh, mostly, uh, they don't have uh, a resolution in the way that plays of the 50s and 60s and 70s uh, did. There's a lot of open-ended questions like uh, for us to go away and go, well, what, what happens next? Thank you. 
So what's coming up at A Public Fit? We've been talking today about Will Arbery's Heroes of the Fourth Turning. That will be presented on June 24th at 7 o'clock and again on June 25th at 2 over at the Clark County Library at 1401 East Flamingo Road. Uh, doors open one half hour before showtime, so come a little early, say hello, and, and, and claim the best seat. And as always, admission to the readings is free of charge. Now, we are very close to announcing our 2022-23 season. Three exciting new plays, four dynamic stage readings. So if you haven't followed us on social media, now is as good a time as any to subscribe. And if you want even more information, you can, of course, visit us online at apublicfit.org. We had a great season this year, even amidst all the continuing chaos and uncertainty that is, is threatening to become the new normal. And we are just so grateful that so many of you came out to share these stories with us. We are continuing to build and looking forward to presenting the very best possible theatrical experience that the Las Vegas Valley has to offer. And again, we just want to thank you so much for your continued support. The... So we talked a little bit about the characters in terms of their education, in terms of their... their um, fundamental belief systems, but it seems to one of the things you said, Amory, at the very beginning of the podcast today was that, that everyone is feeling a, a, a certain amount of fear. There's a lot of fear in, in, in these characters. What are they, what's everybody so afraid of in, in, in the, in the play? Where does that come from? Why is that such a, a heavy theme in this particular show? How does it fit in? You know, the play talks a lot about politics, Yeah, but what I see from the characters is they're really at the heart of it. They want to be loved and accepted by each other and they want to form personal attachments. That's, that's what I see a lot of their motives are. And so um, that's the underbelly. They use the conversation and the debate to connect, but they really want to be accepted by their friends. And I, I think that's Universal. all of us. Yeah. yeah. You know, we all, want to be part of a tribe and feel connected and be loved and have relationships and have a community and family attachments. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, it's about belonging and, and wanting to belong to a thing. And I think that that's what's so tragic for Kevin is that this was where he belonged. And then, you know, I think the Trump thing really for Kevin's character was a was a blow to his understanding of the sides of, you know, because Kevin is incredibly intelligent, but it sort of accelerated his process of not really being able to stand behind a, or to apologize or come up with a rational reasoning for the state of where a lot of the conservative values not being represented and, yeah. and things. And so he's sort of in the middle. I think the image I had initially was that Kevin's like that guy on the side of a bridge, sort of like not like really, really desperate to find to belong. I think he's got that extreme wanting to belong. But one step away from, you know, completely cutting loose and and going and into the world, as he puts it. And, yeah. you know, finding a new tribe. Yeah. Yeah. And then seeking and, and, you know, he's but he's charged up and he's desperate. And I think he represents what's what happens when these explosive debates start happening. I mean, he's he can't take much more of it. 
So these are the, that's I think you're sort of speaking for the four the the four younger characters, mm-hmm. the just graduated mm-hmm. students. Lisa, your character is ascending to the presidency of of this college, but she has fears of her own coming, and she also represents a certain amount of of. Uh, um, yeah, just trepidation and fear Without of the world. Without a doubt, she is. Uh, Gina makes several references in looking. Well, actually, looking for approval. Yeah, uh, looking for approval on curriculum. Looking for approval on uh, being a woman ascending. Yeah, to this was position. she the right choice? Was she really the right choice? I think I believe I've made a choice as an actor that Gina knows she's the right choice. Yeah, because this is what she wanted. But she also grapples with the idea, again, of a time continuum of as a, either a child or a young woman, this wouldn't have been a possibility. So for, their, for all of the references she has um, negating progressivism, yeah. she's on board at this moment. In, in the world being progressive yeah, it's, enough. It's worked out for it's her. It's worked out for her. <laughs> but she is in constant question and then a realization um, or self-doubt that she, anything that she had been teaching, uh, professing, uh, whether her reason or her rhetoric really did any good. Did it do more damage than... Um, bringing in the common good she has a she does have a great uh um confliction with with uh one of the other characters mm-hmm. on a on a um very fundamental level about about just philosophy of of life and how uh motherhood motherhood and and mm-hmm. and the women's role in the in the world right yeah and which doesn't line up with her career goals either yeah i mean she's going to find a way for it to meld and she'll feel successful, but really her, uh, I think there's an examination as she finds herself at the end of the night of do, do her personal goals, her goals of faith and her professional goals, do they meld into being a positive force for her community, for her society, for her students? That having been said, um, does it, you, uh, this is a question for the for the both of you. As actors, do you find this play uh, to have its uh, has specific challenges that are different from other shows that you've done, or are there, or is this just uh, work as usual? You find a character, define their uh, their motivations and their desires, and and just say the words. What do you think, Lisa? <laughs> I, you know, I, I definitely, maybe it's the Gemini in me. I see both sides of it. I yeah. think that I've not been part of an in time, in the moment play. Most of the pieces that I've had to approach or had the good fortune to approach have very deep historic reference yeah. um, or a very specific period of time where we can sit here in 2022 and this play took place in 2017. 2017. So, it's not the same year, but it feels somehow because in between we had the beginning of a pandemic and a lockdown that some of this, again, time continuum gets mushy. It feels so very it, current. It feels like really it, current. It feels very today. So that to me is a challenge in keeping a truth to 2017 and the activities of that moment, which are very different from the activities of today's moments and Ukraine and everything else that's happening globally. Would that change the perspective of our characters? Again, Gina speaks to one of the groups that she had joined as a young woman and that it was against globalization, but it was for the entrepreneur. And I would say in today's world, we kind of put globalization and entrepreneurship 
together. I mean, we don't speak of capitalization in any of those forms, but as an actor, keeping it current, I think of social media, was it? No, wait, social network was one of the best films I ever saw because as I stepped out of the movie theater, it was happening. So I think as an, oh, that's interesting. As an actor, I'm I'm trying to make a I'm making choices that reflect 2017, but people are going to be seeing it in June of 2022. You know, I had a, it's funny you brought up social network. I had a similar experience of walking out of the theater and watching people between the the door to the theater and the concession stand texting yeah. and and sending you know uh, updates to their to their Facebook pages. And it seemed it did seem very very current for that. Um, I don't know if we have a similar <laughs> we're going to have a similar experience with this. Right. Play. I, I think I think, you know, when you like as far as approaching as an actor, I think maybe I had a little trepidation when. So we did the reading in yeah. 2020. And then when we when I heard that we were going to do this for an audience and, and I read the play again on my own, um, I, I did get a little nervous, like, oh, this will just just reading it because you look at the content and then being a little trepidatious when we came to that first read. And then something happened on uh, the first read. We were all laughing yeah. a bunch. And the and the people showed up and then I thought, oh, no, this is not different. This isn't different. I, mean, I just have to say, yeah. I think I told you guys this on the day. I think mm-hmm. Emory about spoke to this. We we've done a lot of shows uh, at APFN before. And I think that, you know, the first reading always happens after design presentations and you sit around and you learn the world that you're going to exhibit. You look at the costumes that the character uh, is going to to be wearing. And then you sit down and for the first time as an entire cast, you read through the play start to finish. And I this was one of the best first reads I've ever been involved with. It was, it was dynamic. It was hysterical. And it just, it, it crackled. The room crackled with that first, first reading. I, I'm not speaking out of turn, am I? No, no, not at all. It was really exciting to see the character show up. Uh, and, and like I said before, in a previous comment, if you focus on the characters and not focus in on all of the themes of the play, then you start to have compassion uh, for them as individuals. And, and, and I think uh, he wrote very distinct characters who have very individual voices that are different from each other. What do you think the audience reaction is going to be, Emery? I can't speak for all audience members. I, 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 that, that's a, a difficult question. And I know a lot of our audience members and I know some of them to be conservative. I know some of them to be moderate. I know some of them to be liberal. I know some of them to be progressive. I know some of them not to be interested in politics. So that, that's a difficult, difficult question. I am very curious about the conversation and the willingness for people to speak up. Uh, uh, and I, I think our audiences are conditioned to have conversations and I think we'll have a good conversation, but I have no idea what's going to happen. It's kind of exciting. Cause I have no idea either. And it's funny cause you started listing, you know, some of our friends, liberals, moderates, conservatives, progressives, apolitical. And with each, with each category that you ticked off, I f- immediately found something in the play that would, would appeal to that group that, mm-hmm. that, that they could connect to within the show and, and speak and would speak to them. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's that well-written a play. You uh, sh- historians, we have an audience member who, who, uh, could have a PhD in history. I'm curious to hear what, what that particular audience member has to say. Yeah, me too. I'm, I'm, I'm curious. What do you guys think? Do you have, have you thought about this at all? What, well, what? I, well, I, I mean, I think I was probably, if you've been listening to the podcast and for us to say that the first read was full of laughs, like that's, that's probably a surprise considering what we're talking about. And it was a surprise to me too. And where does a laugh come from? It comes from recognition of a behavior or people. And so 
I mean, that's, you know, you recognize something and you're and so I, I, I'm surprised that if it's anything like my reaction to it, it's surprising and, um, you know, the triggering, but also like, I don't think anybody's minds are going to change. No, um, well, we're not trying and to, we're not trying to, yeah, that's and, not... and we're not trying to. And I, I, I you know, it'll be, inter- it'll be interesting. I, I have a feeling that, um, I have a feeling it's going to, I, I don't think I would be shocked if anybody, just because I've, I don't know, I, maybe I'm biased because I've grown to be so compassionate towards yeah. these people. Um, but maybe that's from sitting it with it so long. So yeah. I think it'll be, it'll be interesting. <laughs> yeah. That's a, that, what, where did I get to? Was, to nothing. I didn't was, get to that was very funny. Right? Back where we were. And, and still have the ticket in my head. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, I think it's, I think it's important to, to admit that we aren't trying to change minds yeah. and, but we are also, we're not trying to present any sort of political viewpoint other than the political viewpoint of these characters. Yeah. Um, which as we said earlier is kind of ignored in the community writ large and in, in the theater community anyway. Um, I, I, I am curious. I'm curious for the buzz afterwards. I'm curious for the, curious for the, that, for that conversation. Um, but I think that's going to end this conversation. Thanks, Lisa and and Nick for thank you for joining us. This is this is thank you been a great conversation. I'm I'm still I still don't know if I'm a hundred percent ready to be in front of an audience w- with this one. Um, but I feel I do feel a little bit a little bit better. Well, you have to lead the bus. I I, I do <laughs> I do that, that would scare me. I'm looking forward to it. I I, I have to say. So, Anne-Marie, we just recorded a conversation about uh, Heroes of the Fourth Turning, Will Arbery's um, play, which is the last play of our 2021-22 season, a free reading out at the, at the Clark County Library. And it just made me think, you know, I was kind of looking back, um, you know, with some fondness for for this year's season. We did a really brave thing, you know. Yeah, when, I'm really proud of this season. Oh, I'm proud of it, too. I'm mm. proud that it happened uh, beyond the, the, the shows that <laughs> yeah, we chose. Yeah, it was hard. Well, not yeah, only it was during hard. During COVID. You know, during COVID, well, the, the summer came and the and some of hot you may vax, remember hot vac summer yeah we had our hot vac summer the vaccines came out and we just assumed everything would be back to normal in the in mm-hmm. the next couple months so we we've been pretty lucky we um, were we announced a seven show season mm-hmm. uh three main stage productions four i was readings. just telling my dentist he asked me how the theater company was going i was like oh it, was, it went really well and in spite of covid we only had to shut down for one week for well, one one week for seven shows so uh i think that's pretty impressive i, well, I think so too i I wanted to just look back with fondness and just talk a little bit about this this season. Is this and, where I have to list all the shows? No, because I have them <laughs> written down here. I couldn't remember them either. So okay, because I, so I, I started to write them down too. I was like, okay, we did that show and then this show. What was first? What was second? Well, okay. well I'll tell you what was first. We started with Foxfinder by Don King and it was a, a sort of revisiting of the show that that started Public Fit. It was the first show we did. We did it out at the, at the Cockroach Space nine years ago, 10 years ago. And we sort of reinvented the show this time. I was so proud of the, the, um, creepy just environment the the, the moody air and I that feel like created. we understood the characters in, in a much more complex way and I feel like I'm I was a better director and all the actors who participated in it uh, they just created more three-dimensional characters you re- you you, you uh, um, 
reunited three fourths of the cast. Uh, Tina came in mm -hmm. um, to replace Shelley, who who was unable to do it. But I I, I was really proud of that show. Uh, a couple other challenges. It was in a different space, mm -hmm. not our own. We did this one out at the space, mm -hmm. um, out on an industrial, and that had its own challenges as well. But again, I think fairly successful. I give that one a uh, a minus. All right. Yeah. Are okay. we going to grade them? No, you know Please what? Please let's not grade no, them. No, let's not grade them. That's okay. it. So if we're not going to grade them, I give Fox Finder an A+. Plus, so we don't have to do that anymore. Okay, let's stop. <laughs> okay. And then we, had our, then we had our first reading. Our first our first stage reading of this season was Gloria by Brandon Jacob Jenkins. And it, people will remember that one maybe for its uh, uh, surprise violence. Yes, workplace, aggression, yeah. and politics. Right. And we brought in uh, uh, an actor who... Um, He's, he usually acts for us, but he uh, directed that show and he did a great job. He rehearsed um, a lot with his actors. He had a wonderful relationship Jake with Jake Staley, him. we can say yeah. his name, Jake yeah. Staley. Yep, Jake Staley. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> This well, is going was, well. This well, is really going well. well, that was, well <laughs> I think it is. But that was one of the things that we wanted to do this season. In fact, the the other the three of the four readings were directed by people other than us. Um, because I think Thank after a goodness. while, people get tired yes, of just seeing our perspectives us. on things. Yeah, it's a lot of work to direct a play. You have to come up with a concept. You have to have a vision. You have to lead people. You have to work with actors, designers. You have to, you know, work with the producers. And so we want to... We want to help other people take on on that role. And I think we did a good job with that. Well, not just that. I, we, with with this season, particularly, we threw a lot more money at the at the readings, mm -hmm. uh, a lot more by when I say a lot more, I mean, more than zero, um, which we had done yeah, in the past. We, no. we and we included some some scenic elements, some some design choices in terms of costumes and, and, and sound. And I think we really elevated just the production of the readings yeah, we had to figure. Large. Yeah, we had to figure it out. We decided to give the readings more of a budget, right? Uh, and, and pay all of the uh, the participants who are involved. And there was an expectation for the readings that they couldn't just rehearse for four days or a week. Sure, that they had to have a rehearsal process that last lasted a, a certain amount of time. And we had that in the past, but um, each director, depending on their level of commitment and availability. Some, you know, like Daniel, he would come in for just one week and sure. rehearse, you know, for 10 hours a day yeah. and did a fine job. And then other directors in the past would re rehearse sometimes for a whole month. And so we kind of wanted to streamline that and make sure that the, the quality of the work was always, always consistent. Well, and that, that brings me to our second reading, our third production, our second reading, Skeleton Crew by Dominique Mariso, uh, directed by Jason Nias, who brought a, a really specific vision to that uh, to that production, mm -hmm. the again very simple scenic design, but very evocative of the of the automobile workplace. Yeah, uh, Jason is has quite a unique back background. He's an acrobat. He's yeah. also a dancer. He has his own uh, percussion dance company called Malaudi. So he incorporated the percussion element into that uh, particular reading because it 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 says in the play that the automotive plant is supposed to have a life of its own. Right. It's and, almost another character. Right. And he was able to do that uh, with his, his company. Yeah. Uh, and, and do it very, 
in a matter of like an hour. It was remarkable. It was pretty remarkable. Yeah, he would he would say, I think we need something here and his guys would go off <laughs> yeah, and come like, back with kaboom bang wow and it was suddenly <laughs> was a thing. like wow. Yeah. These guys are talented. We we've had our we had our first sort of covid stumble with our next uh production. Oh. It was our first our our, our second fully realized production mm-hmm. of, of Craig Wright's recent tragic events. I just want a, a quick shout out to Craig Wright, who was gracious enough to join us uh, on the podcast. We mm-hmm. had a great conversation with him. Yeah, that show was very successful for us. Uh, there was a, a comic element to it. It was also centered around the theme of 9-11. Yeah, I think about the darkness of, of Fox Finder in comparison <laughs> to the sort of, I won't say silliness, but weird mm-hmm. uh, goofiness in some ways of, of recent tragic events. Well, they had a sock puppet. They did have a sock character was portrayed as a sock puppet. Yes. Uh, um, Joyce Carol Oates. Joyce Carol Oates. Uh, but there was a, a lot of comedy in that show. It was very well acted. Directed by Eric Amblad. Directed by Eric Amblad. And uh, I was really, really proud uh, of the work in that show. And I was really proud that the play worked. Yeah. Because we it's were- 20 years old. Yeah, it's 20 years old. It's about 9-11. And we, the reason why we did that was we didn't want to do a play about COVID. We wanted to do a play about another tragedy event and then maybe create uh, open up the doors for people to talk about COVID in an indirect way, right. talk about their trauma um, right. that they experienced during the lockdown. And that happened during many of our buzzes. It was, it was, a, it was remarkable. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm glad to hear that you did that on purpose because uh, that just makes us look so smart. Um, our next stage reading, Stop Kiss by uh, Diana Sun, directed by Kimberly Mellon. Um, sort of a bigger reading for, for, for us. A lot of, a lot of scenes, a lot of. Um, it was massive. Yeah. She brought in a, uh, it was a huge scenic design. She had costume changes, uh, the work, the interior work of the, of the piece and in, in terms of the acting was very well crafted. Well, and, and another older <laughs> play that was still landing hard. A lot of people, for a lot of folks in the LGBT community, uh, Stop Kiss is a very important play yeah, in that the was, canon. And that was the, that is a play that gave a lot of our community uh, permission to um, acknowledge and recognize uh, their LGBTQIA-ness, yeah. right? And, and and the play really worked because it's it's really a play about people who love each other right. and that experience of falling in love and the awkwardness of that. And, and we can all relate to that. Sure. Um, yeah. Sure. Then you and I stepped uh, back into the directing ring together at last uh, to do Andrew <laughs> Bovell's Things I Know to Be True back at the usual place. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we were both of us a little unsure going into that uh, rehearsal process exactly what that show was going to finally be. We had right. a lot of challenges in front of us. Personally, I wanted to do the play because we wanted to layer on a more abstract uh, way of storytelling through a lot of physicality and music yeah and the play essentially is is a family drama but we felt like the play was really relevant because one of the characters mark transitions from mark to mia right and there are not a lot there's not a lot of representation in terms uh, of the transgender community and very very honest uh portrayal as well the 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 family's reaction to his outing himself and 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 admitting that he was going to go through this process yeah it was about the parents experience the sister's experience and his experience not just his experience and he also was not central in the story he was just one of the vignettes in, in the story which i think uh is 
is a good thing because uh, one of our audience members, um, Autumn Wid Widows, I think is her name. Uh, she talked about if it would have been a, an American playwright, the American playwright would have made the transgender uh concept or theme central right. the whole story would be about that but it right. was really about the family dynamic right uh which is less polarizing right and it allowed to be discussed it allowed it to be discussed in in um, a calm more rational way um yeah. although not without emotion we did have a lot of of emotional mm -hmm. buzzes for that particular show people really connected to and, that show on a visceral level i was really proud of it yeah and we also thought we struggled with that play in rehearsal because it's very dramatic and yeah. we, we were worried that it was going to be too dramatic too overwrought but i think with all of the work that we embedded in the transitions and the the abstract movement and the abstract set and the use of very few props, it, it, it really made the, the, the play work. Yeah. And, and it was very well received. I think I have to say, which yes. brings us to the last, the last show, the last reading of the season. We've been talking about uh -huh. that all day. Heroes of the first, Turning by Will Arbery, you and I mm -hmm. back in the director's seat together again. We're getting along really well. Too. I know. How we hardly, <laughs> hardly fight at all anymore. I know. Where's the drama, Marie? I understand you better, <laughs> <laughs> and I tolerate you more. <laughs> You're so smug. <laughs> that is that is true. I am smug. What do you think about this one? Is this one going to land? I'm having a great time just because. I have to say, we, we're still in rehearsals. We haven't mm -hmm. put this one up yet. It is just the beginning of June. This one goes up June it 24th. It is a lot of work to always put on a play, whether it's fully produced or it's a reading. You have to do almost the same amount of work, even if sure. it is a stage reading, well, because you have to do the research on the play. And we take it really seriously, and we I take have it, to yeah. say. But um, it what makes it worthwhile is the people. And we, as as a company, as an artistic team and a, and a production staff, Brandy Blackman included, sure. uh, our stage manager, we're just having the best time in rehearsal. And um, because of that, uh, we're finding a lot of things uh, in the rehearsal process because there's a lot of trust and openness. And those are all um, good things that need to happen in the rehearsal process in order to tell a good story. Yeah, I, well, I agree. I think that's a pretty good summary of our work for for this year. I, but I want to hear if there's anyone out there listening to us now. I'd like to get some responses from you as well. We've heard, we hear you at the buzz. We chat. We have these conversations uh, at the end of all of our shows, at the end of all of our readings. We're always here uh, to talk about theater and the work that we do. But if you want to reach us directly, um, you can drop us an email either at joe at a publicfit.org or... Anne Marie at a public fit. O-R-G. And if you just want to sort of reach out in general, uh, we can be reached at behind the buzz at a public fit dot O-R-G. Uh, again, thanks Lisa and Nick for, for, for really getting into it about, uh, about Will Arbery's remarkable play and you out there, if you're listening right now, I hope you've subscribed. Uh, but have you taken the time to give us a quick review? Your feedback allows us to improve upon these conversations and, and fine tune the podcast as, as well as allowing other listeners across the interglobe to discover us uh, and, and our work. Uh, talking about the work is one of the favorite things that we do here at APF, and we'd really like uh, for you to join us in, in that conversation. Behind the Buzz is a product of a public fit theater company in association with Giant Leap Industries, Adam Paul Director, slash Phi Delta Pi.
a production of Giant Leap Industries.